Hello, everyone. Welcome to Guys 5 Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasperi. This is Frank Pelican. Tonight, you're listening to episode 99, and we are covering the top five horror films of 1990. This will start our 10-month journey towards covering every single year of horror films of the 90s. And um, we'll be doing that uh, for the last episode of every month. Um, This is our first one. Uh, How are you feeling about um, 90s horror this year, Frank? You know, I was, um, I don't know where this list came from. So one night I was sitting there thinking about, I, I, don't, I don't remember what I had watched, um, but I watched some 90s horror movie and I was like, you know, there's like better movies, better horror movies in the 90s than I remember. Because I usually think of that as being like basically a lost decade. Um, it I, actually brought, may have been, I, I brought this up to you like toward, at the end of the 80s and I was like, I think privately, I'm, I got yeah. Uh, but it was like, and you're like, yeah, there's not anything good in the 90s, really. Like, and, But we were talking B-movies, though, too, I think, when I brought that up. So, Yeah, I, I think I was watching um, Reflecting Skin mm-hmm. um, for our 90 um, best films of, of 1990 episode. And I just went through and started looking and just realized that there was more than I had remembered. Um, and some of which we've already talked about, a few of them that would have would have been on this list um, otherwise. But yeah, I'm 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 pretty good about it. Like, I think there's going to be a there's going to be some interesting lists, and I always like watching a bunch of horror movies. So, yeah, I mean, I've you've actually made all the lists, so I've seen them, and um, yeah, I'm I'm really excited um, for you know these next ten months of talking about these movies. Um, as always, I want to uh, kind of like we did with the horror of the '80s uh, two years ago. Um, because you're you, you know the genre so well like um i'd like to ask you questions just about like where we are kind of like historically with horror and stuff like that um and get your recollections and your you know um your insight after these years of kind of just uh social historical look maybe i guess at at horror so in 1990 like I think we're going to have pivotal points in the '90s with horror, um, uh, like in the throughout this decade. But what's going on in horror in 1990 or even the early '90s um, compared to what was going on in the '80s? So you're still getting a decent amount of um, theatrical horror releases in 1990. Um, a lot of it is sequels, but there's some really, um, really like well-made. Um, standalone movies that came out this year um but this is also a lot of the you're not seeing as much of it but there still is a lot of like direct-to-video stuff that's being made um and a bunch of stuff that's imported from you know uh like italy particularly like there's still a lot of the italian directors that are making movies um but you know most of it is um direct-to-video shock that's a lot of movies that came out um but there's also the beginning of like the i don't know what you call it, like the real like indie horror movement um a lot of which have been outside of this country so like australia there's a decent amount of indie horror um there's some american movies from this year um independent that are that are pretty good um, but for the most part, it's definitely not the output that it was in, you know, the mid 80s. So you can kind of see like a moving away from a lot of horror coming out. 
So do you see any different like changes in terms of the type of stories that are being told around this point? Or is that something that happens later, maybe in the decade? But do you, or do you see differences between the very beginning kind of period of the 90s versus the mid or early 80s at all? Well, again, it's 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 a lot of sequels still. I mean, that's the thing is people trying to continue off of, um, you know, popular franchises from the 80s. Uh, there's also um, a decent amount of, like, literary adaptations, I guess. Um, in the literary, I mean, you know, there's some, you're seeing a lot more Stephen King adaptations around this time. Mm-hmm. Um It's mostly just, I don't know, it's weird because there's a lot of movies that are just kind of tired in terms of their, um, you know, their premise or whatever. Like, it's a lot of stuff that's just rehashing of older ideas. Um, And again, like a lot of sequels. So there's a lot of stuff that's really just trying to play off of the the popularity of existing franchises. but yeah, there's really no like common themes in terms of, I guess, what like people are making or like a shift. Like, you know, because the 80s is a lot of slasher stuff. And then more towards like the mid to late 80s, you get a lot more of um like possession and demon related stuff um, where it goes more out of the realm of like the the guy with the knife. Even stuff like Michael Myers and Jason, they start to... um uh, retcon mystical, um, origins to them. Like, there's a mm-hmm. whole series of Halloween movies. Um, shit, I guess it would be four through whatever number H2O is that retcon. It's like, it's like three movies. I think it's like four, five, and six. That retcon Michael Myers is basically like the immortal spirit of Halloween or something like that. So there's all that weird shit that happens. <clears throat> So um, let me ask you this real quick. It's it's something like I I just quickly looked at like the the last couple of years of the eighties, um, and it feels like it's continuing in the nineties. Maybe where a lot of those early horror movies felt like they were um, like teenagers or early twenty somethings in peril, and it revolved around groups of friends, typically the slasher type stuff, right? Like it feels like there's this move to family. That starts happening at some point. So it's like I think like pump like like pump I'm looking at eighty eight, like Pumpkinhead um is on there and you had Pin on there. And right. then in eighty nine you had parents, um, and you have society and pet cemetery, and it's like this, you know, this list has um you know relationships or, you know, uh family at kind of like its core. Um, in a couple of the, like three of these movies, a weird family in one of them, but it's like, um, but yeah, and it's like, and that kind of continues, it seems a little bit in the early nineties as well. Um, do you, do you have any like thoughts on like why that could, that shift could be happening? Well, just be people that were like making those horror movies. I mean, you know, you brought up society. So look at like Brian Usna, um, Maybe just getting older, mm. or maybe the fact that you were moving from, I mean, the 80s were pretty solidly, like, most of the movies that we look at as being really popular in the 80s 
even the stuff that was R-rated, it was still kind of like family-oriented in that respect, so maybe that's just a reaction to that. Could it be a mainstreaming of horror, maybe? Well, that had happened anyway, I yeah. think, um, in the mid mid to late 80s, yeah. um, just sure. because of the amount of money that could be earned through a successful right. horror franchise. Um, I think some of it is just that it was losing a lot of its... Uh, like underground appeal, maybe. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you look at stuff like um, throughout the 70s and in the 80s, a lot of the um, cheap and dirty, like grindhouse style horror movies. Um, it's definitely become slicker in the 90s. Um, the production values are higher. You get less less stuff that feels like it was kind of filmed on a shoestring budget, more stuff that feels like actual Hollywood productions. Um, even the direct video stuff was done a lot of times through like, you know, like new line and, um, dimension and whatever, like the, um, like the indie slash weird fiction, um, arms of mainstream production companies. Um, so yeah, so I mean, maybe it is becoming more mainstream at that point. I just think it's like losing its ability to, truly horrifying mm. like you you're past the satanic panic period of the 1980s right um towards the 90s you know towards the end of reagan's turn being a bush's term you had, don't have nearly as much of a focus on like the moral majority stuff and the right. i think a lot of people were shifting their focus away from violence and film to language and um, music mm-hmm. you know with like tipper gore like being a primary focus of trying to censor what was being put out um musically right um video games also at a certain point i mean not quite this time in the 90s but within a few years sure um violent video games become the focus where people are sort of pulling back from the idea that like um and violence became a lot more acceptable throughout the 1980s in film like especially um gratuitous um over-the-top violence Mm mm-hmm um, you look at stuff like the, like the Rambo series, um, things like Commando, Predator, um, those things, you know, box office hits and really like they made cartoons out of them and stuff. So, um, the nudity is a little less too than what it was. I mean, it's not like as huge a focus mm-hmm. as like in the eighties where you would always have nudity. Except right. in the direct video stuff, I mean that always kind of followed the same um the same formula that had been established. But you know, like these directors that are making movies still that have been making movies throughout the eighties, they've kind of like owned their craft and in a lot of ways I don't know, they're just making like mainstream movies that just happen to be about horror topics. So Yeah. Okay. And then eventually, like, not to give too many spoilers, but eventually what's going to happen is you'll see, like, a huge sea change away from horror theatrically at all for about, like, five years, really, where no one really cares about horror in the theaters because it wasn't a draw anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know what caused that. I mean, that might be more like our generation going to see different things at the movies. Right up until a certain point and not really being as concerned with the idea of, um, I don't know, watching horror necessarily or 
Yeah, I think we were drawn to personalities a lot more, specific writers, directors, specific actors and actresses, you know, and those kind of things. Um, that's how I ended up, like, seeing a lot of movies, like, um, like how I chose movies. Yeah. Like, I mean, why did I see The Prophecy? Like, you know, even though it's a horror movie, it's like, it wasn't because necessarily The Prophecy fascinated me. It's because Christopher Walken was in yeah. Pulp Fiction. You know, the other thing, the other thing too, and this is from my perspective, and this isn't true in 1990, except it kind of is, you could rent so many, so much more. Like, there was far less of a need to go and spend the money to go to a theater to watch a movie. And really, like, you don't have the boom of the um, Megaplex until um, 90, is when they really start, like, the right on the the verge of it, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So a lot of the stuff that I watched horror-wise, you know, from like the, probably when I was like 10 years old and I started running horror, so the late 80s, like 87, 88, like up through the mid-90s when I was driving and I had money to go and watch movies, I was renting it every weekend at the mm-hmm. right. store, you know, sure. so like a lot of the ones that would come out, stuff like The Mangler and like the um Slumber Party Massacre sequels and all the stuff, like that was just stuff that was just going right to video and I could just watch it you know my house so it didn't really matter sure yeah and i can't remember we talked about it briefly just privately last night but i can't remember when the five for five for five started um like when those kind of deals started like popping up but it feels like it was like maybe maybe 91 92 well it definitely i was definitely going to choices videos choices in um box run plaza in like 93 Mm-hmm. I guess so when I would have been um 16 um 16 and 17 and doing the five for five like pretty consistently um and I was consistently renting horror movies then so yeah I know I had to have a surgery in 93 where I was like on my stomach for a month and that's when I my movie watching really started was that point like heavily, I've watched movies all my life up to that point, and a lot of them. But it's like that's when I started watching film. I would say if I made the distinction, and that was ninety three, and they had the five for five to five because my poor mom would actually like I would like end up finishing movies like in a day, like usually or like two days. I'd watch five movies because uh, I had nothing else to do, and she would go out and like rent me five more, and I was using Letter Malden's guide, um, like to see which movies I, and that's how like I saw like all the Godfathers and like Cowboy and like, you know, like all these right. like seventies classics. And, um, so yeah, that was 93. So it had to be 92, 93 when that kind of stuff started, which is probably actually now that I think about it, a reaction to the megaplexes, right? Probably. Like, yeah, I would think so. Just as a way to get people right. Like to stay in the video store in certain mm-hmm. ways. Yeah. But also, it was because videos didn't cost $70 anymore to buy. Sure. Like, you know, you were moving out of the time period where a copy of Ghostbusters for the first year would have been like $90 or $100. Right, right. And now, you know, you can walk into any big box, you know, Kmart. Yeah, or- right. Yeah. And and Demolition and, Man was $20 and I could just buy it. Right. And like some of the stuff, like a lot of the stuff that I was buying was $9.99. Sure. Shit, Woolworth had a whole bin of um three for ten dollar VHS mm-hmm. tapes, mm-hmm. like old horror and Godzilla and right. um war movies and stuff. So yeah, I don't. Yeah, okay. I, mean, I guess right. there's a lot of factors involved in it, but yeah. Um, so I guess this episode, um, 
uh, does have an asterisk, asterisk like on it a little bit, um, just because I am assuming that there are four movies that we have already discussed on prior podcasts that would have made this list. And well, namely, I'm thinking of the Reflecting Skin, Exorcist Three, Misery, and Jacob's Ladder. Yeah. So really, uh-huh. like, in some ways, like your number one movie might have been like the like the one that like would have made this list possibly. I mean, Exorcist Three. You, remember, you cheated a little bit, like on that. It's it's traditionally considered a 1990 movie, but like you found some sort of loophole. Um, in terms of production, to be able to put it in '89, because you never thought we were going to do '90. Right. <laughs> I stand by that. Um, yeah, Exorcist Three definitely would have made the list. Jacob's Ladder definitely would have made the list. Um, I love Reflecting Skin, but I don't know that I necessarily consider it 100 percent a horror movie. Mm-hmm. So I might have struggled with that just personally um yeah the number one movie would have definitely made the list and maybe one of the other ones but yeah those movies almost would have been 100 like on the list so but i mean i think that's interesting that you still can get you know i mean there's really probably about 13 movies that came out this year that i would consider to be if not like must watch then at least highly recommended to people that are fans of horror so in addition to the ones you named, there's also um, um, there's a movie called Singapore Sling, which is a black and white, like weird, like psychosexual horror movie that's that's pretty good. Um, Tremors is this year. All right. There's a there's a movie called Mirror Mirror, which isn't great, but has some interesting stuff in it. Um, that started a certain franchise. Um, Frankenhooker is this year, which is a really fun, like, um, indie horror movie. Um, Death by Temptation is fine. Um, Bride of Reanimator is fine. Uh, there's a Fulci movie called Cat in the Brain, which is pretty good. So, I mean, there's, there's still some decent stuff outside of what we're going to talk about tonight and the ones that you mentioned. So it's, um, a pretty solid year for horror. So, yeah. Um, real quick, uh, when I was a kid, I liked Psycho 4. Um, is that just because I had bad taste? I can't remember which one Psycho 4 was. That's the one where he is out, it's like a direct, I can't remember who made it, but it's right. like, is a direct, right. where he's out of the institution and gets married and everything, and, but slowly kind of like starts reverting back to... Um, I watched that movie a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. Because Prime had like all the psychos up, right. and it was not good. Okay, right. It's somebody like well known in horror. Who's the guy that does Mas- Masters of Horror? Who's that guy? Like the guy that like produced it, like that. Uh, I can't remember who that is. Mick Harris. Yeah, Mick Harris. Yep, that's it. Yeah, he 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 directed it. Yeah. Which, if it's shitty, now kind of makes sense. I don't know. I mean, it's not... It's just, it's just not good. Like, it's... I don't know. It's very overwrought and very plotting. 
and Perkins. I don't know. It's, 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 it's just a weird movie. You can watch it again. I think it's still free on Prime. So have at it. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm, I'm good. Um, <clears throat> all right. You ready to get started? Yep. Okay. Uh, before we get started, uh, just quickly, just let everybody know, um, as we are in the process of recording the 100th episode, which is going to be this uh, uh, extremely long uh, episode with a number of friends of the podcast um, on it, uh, we will be actually off again next week. Um, and then the 100th episode will be uh, released the second uh, week of February. And then when we come back in the third week again, we will be doing the top five uh, black docudramas. Uh, which Frank made that list, and I'm really excited to watch uh, or rewatch uh, those movies. Um, and then at the end of February, we will be doing the top five horror films of 1991. Uh, as always, if you have any list suggestions um, or you'd like to contact us in any way, please feel free to reach out to us on our Gmail, two guys five movies at gmail.com. That's the number two and five. Uh, and then you can reach us on Facebook and Instagram as well. All right, so Frank, uh, number five on your list is The Guardian, directed by William Friedkin. It stars Jenny Seagrove, Dwyer Brown, Carrie Lowell, Brad Hall, and Miguel Ferrar. Uh, it has a 30% from critics and a 32% from audiences. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why it's on the list? Uh, so, what was the audience score? 32. 32. It's a little surprising. I would have thought it'd be a little higher from the audience perspective. Um, it's a story about this woman who's a nanny, um, who's also, you find out, uh, like a tree spirit or this um, carnivorous spirit of the forest that basically steals the blood of the newborn in order to stay like forever young. Um, the movie opens with her stealing an infant child from um, this couple and then taking it to the woods and basically like consuming it in the tree or whatever. Um, and then later there's another like young, like I guess quote unquote power couple, um, who have a child, but then the woman wants to go back to work because we're the lawyers, I think. And, um, or no, she's like an architect, right? Or a designer and he's a lawyer. Anyway, they both have like, um, high, high profile jobs and, um, so they decide to rent a name, not rent a name, but employ a nanny. Um, so their final two choices are this um, young college student girl who's enthusiastic and they like a lot. And this um, British woman who seems like really like caring and whatever. But um, they're going to go with the college girl, but the college girl gets in a terrible accident, like bicycling accident on her way. Um, or like before she gets off of the job, setting up employing the nanny the British nanny. And it turns out that the British nanny was responsible for the woman's accident. Um, so the British nanny is almost like too good to be true. Like she's a really great, like with the kid, um, one of their friends who's that their friend is an architect who designed their house. Um, is kind of like smitten with the British nanny. So he keeps trying to like take her out on dates and she won't do it. And finally, like he follows her one day and sees her bathing in the woods, like naked and in like the, the river or whatever and then he follows her and watches her like meld with the tree and then he gets attacked by wolves and then he dies um so they eventually the husband comes to realize that there's something wrong with this woman and that she's like not a good influence around their kid um 
but she comes back to like take the kid and um he ends up going into the woods and basically attacking her spirit tree with a chainsaw while she's in the house trying to take their daughter from the wife and then ends up killing her. Um, that's it, really. I mean, it's kind of a like folklorish take on a subject that is a topic that's the subject of a lot of horror movies, um, which is the idea of like the evil nanny. I mean, you have... Um, what is it? Hand the Rocks to Cradle is around this time, which is a really... Yeah, I think it's next year, maybe. Like Really similar idea, except without the supernatural element. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another movie about ten years after this that's almost exactly the same, but without the supernatural element. But, like, with, you know, the idea of, like, the babysitter. The Omen has the same idea in it, really. Like, with the, you know, the babysitter who's, like, the... Um, servant of satan um and i guess it just plays on like your question about the families and stuff like the fear of you know you're coming out of a time where don donahue and montel and whatever sally jesse there was always stuff about child abductions and you know child molesters like kidnapping your kid and so there's a lot of inherent fear i think that's just built into give like can i leave my kids alone with a stranger like what are people's intentions when they're around my child? Um, the reason it's on the list is because I think it's really fascinating to build like the mythology of like a dryad almost. Um, like this creature of the woods that kind of is in control of nature and, you know, can take like this sort of like hybrid, like human plant form and is basically like living off the blood of the, the innocents. Kind of like an Elizabeth Bathory type thing, like you know, they like alive forever. Um, so instead of just being like a paint by numbers, you know, like crazy woman, whatever, um, she's like a force of nature and, and I'm a monster. And I, I'm always a sucker for monster movies in a lot of ways. So, I mean, truth be told, like it's not a great movie. Um, it's nothing that I would call like a classic or anything. Um, but I think it's kind of an, un, a lesser known movie. Um, and it was one that I saw a couple times when I was a kid, um, running it from the, you know, from the video store. Um, and I think that it's enjoyable and I think it's a pretty easy watch and it's got some decent scenes in it. I really like the practical effects of the, like the children's faces, like being like etched into the bark of the tree and, um, just like the way that it shows her like melding with the tree and, um, it's got kind of a feel, it's got that like mystical, like wispy, I don't know, almost like mythological woods, like feel to it sometimes when they're out in the woods. So I don't know. Well, not a perfect movie. And I, Friedkin kind of like disavowed himself with this movie afterwards, but, um, I still think it's good and I think it's worth watching. Yeah, that's it's surprising to me because um I don't know, I, I, I enjoyed this movie when I watched it. I thought it was I thought it, look, it's 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 a pretty trite story, I suppose. Like and maybe that's in hindsight, I don't know, but I don't think it is. Like Ebert gives it uh one out of four stars and kind of bitches about the harsh cliches 
uh, let's say ominous music, curtains blowing in the wind, empty baby cribs, dire warnings from strange women, manifestations of savage canines, blah, blah. Um, so I, I get all that, and I get that it's like it is kind of like uh, you know, treading some of the same ground. But I just thought that it was largely well acted throughout. And I thought that the direction and the pacing was like pretty damn competent uh, for the story that they were telling. Uh, and I just thought it was a, I mean, yeah, you, you said it's not a classic. It's not great even, I don't think. But I just thought it was like an enjoyable, it reminded me of something that I would have watched on Saturday afternoon yeah. on like Channel 8 or something like that. Like one of the Saturday afternoon horrors. Um and a number of these movies are reminding me of that because they came out at the same time period, even if I'd never seen them before. They came out at the same time period I was watching those kind of things on Saturday afternoon or on Up All Night on USA or something like that. And it just, I don't know, it just reminded me of that. And But I thought it was, but some of those movies really suck that I watched when I was young. And I thought this was competent. Like, yeah. Well, you really can't take anything away from Freakin. I mean, no matter what, he's a good director. Right. And nobody's playing this for schlocky camp. I mean, there's definitely, to your point, you know, there's investment on by the principals and like the roles that they're filling. So I don't know. Yeah. Like, again, I, I think it's a movie that a lot of people haven't really seen, maybe. Um, but it was one that I would, you know, I felt would be kind of fun to talk about and something that people can like watch and, you know, to your point, like kill like an hour on an afternoon or whatever. I like um, the wolves and stuff too. Like I like that trope because it reminds me a lot of like the Hammer movies from the late seventies of the idea of like there's these harbingers of this evil force that are kind of like you know like it was always like wolves with like the vampire like when there was a vampire that was um like maybe infesting the town or whatever in those Hammer movies and there would always be like wolves prowling around the outside. Like I like that. That's that's classic horror to me. Right. I don't know. I think it's used a good effect here. I do too. Yeah. I you know. I mean, I don't have a lot to say about the movie, like necessarily, but I just thought it was a, a well done movie, and I think those thirty and thirty two scores are a little surprising to me. Um, overall, like I thought the special effects were decent. I thought the cinematography was, um, you know, above average. I, you know, it's like I thought the editing for a horror movie was pretty well done um, overall because I usually bitch about the editing a lot of times in horror movies, especially like from the 80s. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I just thought it was a well-told story. And I actually think it's... Uh, I'm not a fan of The Hand Who Rocks the Cradle like necessarily, like, uh, like when that was like really popular back then. Um, but I haven't watched it since, whatever, 92 or something uh, when it came out. But... Uh, I don't know. I, I thought this was just as good if I enjoyed this more, I think, than I did when I handed rock the cradle when I was young because I don't know. I like the supernatural element to it, and I don't think I'm a big fan of Rebecca Mornay, so. That's mean. I, I like Rebecca I think she's a handy actress a lot of times, like. Um... Huh? Nothing. <laughs> Alright, but yeah, I don't know. So okay, you know, I, I, I like. I don't know. I don't know what people's uh, problem is with it. But. Maybe it's just because there's not a whole lot. I mean, I don't know how many people were given those reviews, but it might be. Yeah. You know, a disproportionate amount of people that just don't like. Who you knows something? Right. 
Yeah. I mean, look, it's cheese. Look, there's cheesy stuff in it. Like, I mean, like the ending's pretty fucking cheesy to some degree. Like, but I mean, the chainsaw, the like. Yeah. But I don't know. I guess I can forgive some of that stuff because of the time period or something. I don't know. Um. All right, let's go ahead and move on. Um, uh, number four on your list is Clive Barker's Nightbreed. It stars uh, the incomparable Craig Sheffer, uh, and Bobby, and David Cronenberg as um, a uh, psychiatrist. Uh, it is a 39% from critics and a 60% from audiences. Um, so you want to tell us a little bit about uh, this movie and why you have it on the list? Listen, I'm actually kind of surprised that this is low as 60% from audiences, because I always feel like this is sort of a like a cult a cult favorite in a lot of ways. Um so Barker directed this movie um from his own short story Cabal. Um and it's very very clearly set in like Barker's um like psychomysticism universe that Hellraiser is a part of and like most of his books of blood stuff are a part of. Um the story follows uh, Aaron Boone, who's um, mentally disturbed in some ways. He's been like treated for various, um, I guess, like almost like psychotic break illnesses, um, including like hallucinations and stuff. Um, he's finally started to feel some measure of, I guess, like peace and normalcy because he has this girlfriend that he loves and um, he feels more stable, but his doctor keeps trying to push him into the idea that he's not well and he's just not remembering um, like the things that he's done. Um, almost like implying, trying to tie him to a series of murders that you come to find out are the doctors doing, um, who is a serial killer who um, one of the best looking characters in the movie in terms of like when he wears his mask, he wears this um like faceless mask where the eyes are just a couple of buttons. Um, one of my favorite like villain looks from the early nineties. Um, Aaron has dreams about this city named Midian, um, where this group of deformed monstrous like humanoids live. Um, this is the cabal from the story, the night breed from the title of the movie. Um, the only way you can get into Midian is if you are like a member of the Nightbreed. So, um, once he's framed for this murder, he tries to go there. He's gunned down outside of it, but gets resurrected because he's, like, as this prophesized, like, chosen one for the Nightbreed. Um, so there's a couple versions of this movie. I think the one that you saw is the, I think the only one that's really available to watch right now is the extended version. Except for um, just two days ago, the other version came out on HBO, I think. Really? I think so. So there's a short version of this movie, which is the one that for the majority of my life was the only one that you could see. Mm -hmm. um, and definitely the version that I saw growing up, um, which eliminates a lot of the deeper backstory to the mysticism of Midian and Aaron's connection as the... Um, I can't remember what his name is, like the chosen one of their group. Um, and also kind of eliminates some of the ending, really. Um, the end of the movie is basically that he is going off, like his girlfriend gets resurrected as a night breed, 
and they're going off to do what they need to do to like find a place for them to to survive basically um because they can't survive in the world of man or whatever um so the shorter version cuts out a lot of like the um exposition that the longer version which like you know the i guess was this the first time you'd ever seen this movie at that point yes yeah this time so you're seeing a lot of stuff that like wasn't seen in the original um Clyde Barker is very very high-minded, I guess, in a nice way to put it. Um when it comes to how he like builds mythology within his worlds, um how he I mean, almost like creates this idea that like being an outsider is actually like a preferable way to be like creates these worlds where the outsiders are the ones that are accepted and being like the idea that you might be into something that's different than what normal people would accept um, is okay in a lot of ways. Um, And just as some backstory, Clyde Barker, you know, is gay and a lot of his um, fiction is based on the idea of that, that like, you know, coming out of the closet and acceptance and like what society does to people that, you know, to like hide their true face. So there's a lot of like metaphor here with, you know, like where's your true face and like the guy that Aaron meets in the psychiatric ward of the hospital, like using these um, thumb knives to like cut his face, his skin off of his face so he can be accepted in Midian. And um, it's just a lot of metaphor. And the director's cut, like the extended version, has much, much more of that, where it's a lot more subtle in the, what is it, like 91 minute, I think is what the original, 90 minutes. Right. Definitely not like the two plus hours that um the other version is. Um, I love Barker's vision in terms of the way things look. Um, I really like, because Barker's also a visual artist, I really think that he has a, a good eye for what looks good from a horror perspective, like things that can be both um, horrifying and also like cool or titillating or whatever. Like it's just, it's, it's really well done in that respect. Um, I love Barker's mythologies that he builds. Like, I think there's a lot of um, pretty amazing ideas that he puts into his worlds in terms of um, creating like this really deep fabric that his characters live in. Um, and I don't even know if it, like, it's even possible to, outside of maybe now, if you did it as like a series on television to like put as much into it as what he wanted. So in that way, it's in some ways like a really impressive failure, I guess. Um, but I still think there's a lot of effective scenes in it. And I think that, um, Cronenberg's, uh, doctor villain character is a really, to me, a really iconic villain of the nineties. Um, just both in terms of the look and like the brutality and so yeah, I don't know. I also don't know that it's for everyone. Like I think it's maybe a little too high minded at some points and maybe even borders on pretentious once in a while. Um but I think that if you're into it and you like it, like you like the ideas behind it, I think it's definitely worth watching. And Parker's a an amazing and 
in my opinion, like really underappreciated talent in the world of horror. Like I think that he's inspired a lot of things and I think that he's incredibly innovative when it comes to the way that he looks at like presenting horror and the ideas of like what is horrific or, you know, like that more psychological approach to not that he's psychological, like it's it's all like Grand Gugnol or whatever, but just in the ideas of like what's behind that, I think he's um he's innovative. So yeah. Uh, yeah, there's plenty of things that I like of his. Like did he actually direct those? I mean Candyman I like. Um let's see. Well see Candyman is all like it's it's that similar idea that even though the Candyman is a villain, he's only a villain because society made him a villain. Right. Like, he was uh, a pure-hearted artist that just loved a woman and then was murdered and came back to life to seek vengeance. I mean, that's the thing that I think... I think that's one of Barker's, like, overriding ideas is the idea of, like... you know, you can't keep people down or you can't, like, treat people poorly for so long until they finally, like, you finally get your comeuppance, in a way. Right, yeah. I, um... I, I've i never read hardly hardly anything of Barker's. Um, I'm not well-versed, like, in his novels. I know a lot about them because you read Barker a lot, and, um... Uh, Guy Wesley used to read him a lot. But... Uh, and I heard from both of you about how much, you know, you like those things, but, um, to one degree or another, but, uh, I'm looking at just as filmography. That's where I know more. And it's like, I like Hellraiser. I love Hellraiser. I think Hellraiser is really good. Um, I'm one of those weirdos that likes Little Revolutions, um, where a lot of people don't like, I liked it at the time, like pretty well. Um, I just don't, I don't know. I just wasn't feeling this movie. I don't know what it is. Um. There's something like cartoony about it to me. Um, it's it, it might be maybe it's like the make like the makeup or the mask. It's the, and all pra- that. It's, it's the practical effects. It's, it reminds me of like little monsters or something, except for like you know fetishy. Um, like I I don't know. Like I I don't like that family like aspect. I it's just this I don't know. I just I just wasn't thinking it. Like and I felt like it was co- incoherent at times. Like the mythology, right. Um, that was like built, even though it was two hours long. Like I, I just, I felt like I was missing something like the entire time, even though I kind of understood like where Barker was coming from and like what he was trying to do with some of like those subtext and stuff like that. I, um, I just felt like I was missing something like most of the movie. Like, so Barker definitely, Barker's got a series of books, um, based in this idea of this sea of subconsciousness called quiddity um the first one's called the great and secret show and it's um really well written really like a fully realized i mean well well written for my you know 14 year old mind in like the early 90s but um it's pretty brilliant and a lot of like where nightbreed comes from is this idea of there's a lot more behind the surface of our world um, which when you're like a, you know, like a lonely 13, 14 year old kid, like there's a lot of appeal to that. Um, and I think that's what I like about Nightbreed. Now watching Nightbreed this time for the purpose of the podcast, 
I agree with you a little bit. Doesn't necessarily have the same feeling as I got. Right. You know, when I was a kid, but like the nostalgia thing there is still pretty strong to me. And I think if you like Parker, I think it's worth watching just to kind of see like what he was allowed to do when he basically had free reign in terms of his um, creative control over a movie. Yeah, I mean, I didn't have a problem with the direction or, like, you know, necessarily, like, or any of that stuff. I really liked Cronenberg in, in that role. Um, um, I mean, it's a suitable, he's a suitable weirdo uh, for it. And um, Craig Sheffer's, like, you know, I'll, I'll never be able to not, like, despite him being in so many things and things we've talked about in the podcast, like, even, like, I, I'll never not see him as Uncle Keith on One Tree Hill and just kind of yeah. think a certain way of him. Um, but, um, yeah, I understand why he didn't break through after watching this movie, like as an actor, like to a higher level. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just, I just didn't. I, I just wasn't feeling this movie. Like, I don't think I go so far say I hate it at all. Um, like Owen Gleiberman, this makes me feel bad. Like, gave it like a C plus, and it's like, yeah, right. Um, that's that's a C maybe. I would give it like, um, like I just didn't like, you know like love it or anything like that um but uh, all right number three on your list this is gonna be a fun conversation i think for some reason um is a movie called two evil eyes uh it is uh, uh adaptations of Edgar Allan Poe stories that are uh two different you know like uh segments of the movie um, so there are two mini movies. One is directed by George Romero. The other is directed by Dario Argento. Um, the Romero segment uh, stars Adrian Barbeau and Rami Zelda. And then the uh, Argento segment is Harvey Keitel and Madeline, uh, Madeline Potter. It has a 56% from critics um, and a 35% from audiences. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about these kind of two adaptations and uh, why you put this on the list? Um, so the Romero segment is based on um, facts in the case of M. Valdemar. Um, it's what I would call probably like very traditional, classic, like horror anthology stuff, um, which is the man who's wronged by um, his wife and her lover that ends up like in the end, there's some ghostly vengeance that's enacted upon um, the parties that did the wronging or whatever. Um, Adrian Barbeau is the wife of a ailing um, elderly wealthy man. Um, she's waiting for him to die so she can get, um, her inheritance from him. Uh, she was a stewardess, I guess, that met him and married him, and so she's married into wealth. Um, her lover is his doctor, um, and they're trying to conspire to basically make it like he dies, and they conspire to make it look like he's alive longer, um, in order to take some suspicion off the fact that she's like basically a gold digger, so she doesn't lose the money. Um, but when keeping him alive, he's, I guess, in, in, 
in him dying and them keeping him around, he's sort of like broken the barrier between the spirit world and the normal world. And there's things in the spirit world that are using him to come through. Um, whereas if they just would have let him die in the first place, it wouldn't have happened. Um, so it, it feels a lot like, uh, Tales from the Dark Side or Tales from the Crypt episode. Um, the second segment directed by Argento is, I guess, a little more like psychologically complex and it's based off of the Black Cat, um, where Harvey Keitel is a fucking asshole photographer, um, who lives with his, uh, musician girlfriend. She's like a concert musician. Um, and he ends up killing her during an argument and then walling, uh, she has a cat and he hates the cat. So he kills her during an argument and walls her and the cat inside the wall of his house and then makes it seem like they went away on vacation and, um, she left him, um, and almost gets away with it except that, um, the cat had babies inside the wall and they dig themselves out and, um, it's a pretty, I don't know if it's a good adaptation of a of the black cat, but it's it's got a lot of those elements there. Um it steals from shit, Casco Amontillado and um hitting the pendulum in some parts and it 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 steals liberally from Poe. Yeah. Um and allusions to like the different names of all kinds of different yeah, like there's all kinds of stuff that's going on there. Yeah, so but still really well done. Um Kaitel I will forever say is the most overrated actor from the eighties and nineties. This is why I thought it was going to get interesting because this is a hot take from you. Um, I don't think that Harvey Keitel has a shred of the talent that people give him credit for. I think he's good at doing like one thing and I don't even like that. So I don't know. Like he's good in like 10 minute blocks, like in Pulp Fiction, like that's fine. But when Harvey Keitel is carrying your movie, like, you might as well have him carrying it off a cliff because they ain't fucking going nowhere. I um, agree with you that, like, I don't think he's a lead, but that's a that's a that's a that's that's just the wrong take. If you think he can only do one thing, like he can do he can do lots of things. Like, yeah, but he does them exactly the same way. Like, it's that delivery. It's like I feel like he never understands the emotion his character is meant to be portraying in the way that the words come out of his mouth because they always come out clipped and weird and I don't know I just can't stand watching like I understand that that's an unpopular opinion that runs contrary but anytime I see Kaitel in a movie my first thought is like god this thing's gonna be shit so but in terms of the way the movies are filmed they're both filmed very well um, I'm actually surprised that it's as low as it is. Um, I wonder if it's just because of how much of a joke car was at the time to most people. Like, that nobody took it seriously, that a lot of, like... Well, you gotta remember, the audience scores are more recent than that, you know? Like, these are people that are watching this movie in the past 15 years, probably. Um, I mean, I remember seeing this on HBO, I think. It used to be on HBO all the time. Mm-hmm. And, um... My friends and I that watched horror, we all liked it a lot. Like, I've always enjoyed it. Um, right. I like the dream sequence stuff in Black Cat quite a bit. Like, with, um, 
uh, him being like strung up on the, um, I don't know what that torture device is called, but basically like the rack that's right. suspended in the air. And, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of really like clever visuals in it. Um, they do a good job of building because I, the Black Cat's one of my, my favorite Poe, um, short stories and they do a really good job of building the same tension of the idea that you really feel like he's going to get away with it and you're waiting to like, waiting to see him not get away with it, but then um, you think he does, and then, like, he doesn't, and then, like, he pulls it out again, but then all of a sudden, um, like, in the end, he gets his comeuppance, and he gets his comeuppance, and he kills, like, two people with him, basically, which is crazy. Yeah. Um, I, I love that final shot of them, like, hanging out the mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um But, yeah, it's just, it's, it, it's really enjoyable. I think it's a very... You know that I like anthology horror movies, even though it's only two segments. Still, I consider it an anthology. Right. Sure. Um, because of the central theme and whatever the Poe. Um, I think you can tell that. I think Argento understands Poe a little more than Romero, just from the way that yeah, he tells the story. Because I kind of feel like Romero. Again, I feel like Romero is directing an episode of Tales from the Dark Side. Yes. Or, Creep show, or um, yeah, yeah, you know, like that's yeah. that's a creep show segment because mm-hmm. um, it kind of is like it's basically it's a lot different, but really, in a lot of ways, the same idea is like the Ted Danson, yep, yep, um, yep. segment from Creep Show One. Um, but yeah, like it's just it, it's an enjoyable movie, it's not too long, and again, it's very, very firmly planted in my mind as like a good example of that early 90s horror. And like what it can do when it does it right. Yeah, it feels like it combines like the Ted Danza segment and the and the segment after that with the professor. Um, yeah, like it's almost like a combination of those two. Yeah, you're, yeah, yeah. That might be because of Adrian Barbeau too. Right. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's why you feel that way. Maybe. I was in love with Adrian Barbeau in the early '80s. Mm-hmm. Um, I still was like looking at her here, thinking like, man, like she is still attractive. Mm-hmm. My that's my swamp thing do, but um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I I wasn't the greatest fan of the first one necessarily. Um, there's some elements I thought were good, but it was still kind of nostalgic in the sense of reminding me of the things I watched in like the early '90s a lot. And um, but I really like the second segment, uh, um, with Kaitel. Like there, he's a he's just a fucking brutal. He's an asshole. asshole. Like, I mean, like, he's just an absolute prick. And I think he plays the prick well. Um, he he played it well enough that I really wanted to see this, like, you know, the, the point of the whole damn thing is to get him to see that kind of poetic justice kind of, you know, like, happen. Um, and yeah, like I, I was, I was, I was captivated for whatever the fifty minutes, I guess, like it runs probably or something like that. Like in terms yeah. of like, you know what brutal awful thing is he going to do next and then like you know i like the suspense of him trying to get away with it and um yeah i i I thought it was a really well-told story and i thought it had the pacing like you were saying it's like it had the feel and the pacing a little bit more of a modernized pose story right than the other kind of schlocky campy um you know adaptation that romero does 
Plus the fact that it had like the mystery element to it and then kind of the mystical, you know, dream reality element. Right. Like, it, it felt very OS in that respect. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, again, it's not something I have like a lot to say about, but I, I, I enjoyed overall just sitting down and watching it because I had never seen it before. Uh, at least I don't remember seeing it if I had. Um, but yeah, like I, I especially enjoyed the second segment a lot with Kaitel. Um and uh who I who I do think is a is a is a competent actor in uh doses. But um uh He's limited. I'll okay, I'll give you this. He's limited. he can do like I think he can do like five things really well. Maybe. From dusk till I dawn, just... like he can do that. Like really Aside... well. Aside from the actions of the character, I don't feel that this Kaitel is any different than the Kaitel in like um smoke or whatever. No, I knew I knew you were gonna fucking It's the same person. Let's move on. Same reflections, <laughs> everything. It's all the same. Just one of them's a white beater and a cat killer, and one of them is a douchebag. Let's move on. <laughs> Number two on your list um, is Night of the Living Dead, a remake directed by Tom Savini. It stars Tony Todd, Patricia Tallman, Tom Towles, and McKee Anderson. It has a 66% from critics and a 68% from audiences. Um, do you want to tell us uh, a little bit about, uh, I guess, probably more about... Uh, well, I don't know if we've ever even talked about Night of the Living Dead on here, the original, have we? So no, I guess I tell us a little bit about the movie um, and its history and uh, why you have it as number two. Um, so the reason this movie exists is because there's an issue with the original Night of the Living Dead's copyright where the creators, um, specifically uh, Romero um, and his partners at the time, received like no royalties for that movie. So... So the idea was they were going to make it like on the cusp of where they would still be able to get, I guess, like, like to earn some money from it. So they could finally start to earn royalties from it and actually like get some profit off this thing they made, which is one of the more, you know, iconic horror films. I think of like, I don't know, the 20th century, maybe ever. Um, so in essence, they have Savini. Who was only going to do the practical effects, um, end up directing it and really kind of make a very faithful modern retelling of Night of the Living Dead. Um, so the dead are rising from their graves. There's a group of, um, disparate personalities, these people that are trapped in this farmhouse, um, who all have different ideas about what they need to do to survive. Um, ultimately, the only one that's left is this girl who was super weak at first, but finds like a measure of strength, um, through the course of like surviving this night. Um, it's not as much of a commentary on like social and racial tensions as much as the first one was. Um, it's a much more straightforward horror movie. Uh, but I think it's, really well done. I think it's one of those things where there's enough difference between it and the original 
where it feels more of an homage than like a straight remake, even though it is like a remake. Um, I think it looks beautiful. I think the practical effects are insane in it, like so good. The zombies all look really good. I think there's a lot of tension in the way that the characters interact with each other. Um, the movie I know, I remember like it was maligned at the time because you could watch Night of the Living Dead. Like you could go buy Night of the Living Dead in 1990 anywhere for like $5. And there was dozens of versions of it because you could just like anybody could release it. There was no copyright. Right. So if you and I wanted to release a version of Night of the Living Dead and sell it at like our store or whatever, we could do it. Right. So there were so many shitty transfers of, of that movie and so many just like blatant ripoffs of it that seeing the original creators and a guy who in all honesty is like one of the most um important people in horror cinema like in the latter part of the century i mean maybe i don't know maybe outside of like wes craven and john carpenter like maybe the third most important um horror icon in tom savini um come in and make this movie i mean it's just um i just love it like i don't know it's i think it looks amazing like i think the color in it is fantastic i think the scenes in it are fantastic i love the way it's shot like at night like there's nothing about this movie i don't like and in some ways like i feel like the ending is a little more of a cop-out from the original Mm -hmm. um because the original basically put a lot like shine shown the spotlight on the idea of um it's like inherent bias against black people that caused ben to get shot in the end of the first the original movie um when he's not a zombie whereas here it's um kind of changes her character because it like shows that she's gone from being this innocent submissive you know like retreating flower into being this kind of tough vicious almost like inhuman monster because she just like lets like shoots the guy who basically caused like all the trouble to happen like this vigilante justice idea, but I don't know. Like, I, I think it's a great movie. I really like it. And Tony Todd is an insanely underrated actor from that time. Period. Like Tony Todd is one of the best character actors from the late eighties and early nineties. And this movie combined with, um, Candyman and his, the one episode of X-Files that he's in and, Sleep just in general, sleep, like, I think it's called. What is it? Sleep, maybe. Yeah, it's it's the one where it's the um it's the Vietnam government experiment had, where yeah. soldiers never allowed to sleep. Right. Um, it's just you know it's um it's just a really good movie. Yeah. Um. Ebert um. Ebert didn't really like it, and said he didn't really understand why it needed to be remade. Um at all like i mean you kind of explained what the uh, motivation there was um you know he says unless they're trying to prove that you know uh black and white photography is indeed more effective than color um he didn't really understand like the point of this remake um 
but I, I think the one point that he makes that I kind of agree with, um, he does he does uh, uh, say that he's grateful though that um, her character um, figures out what was so obvious, like you know, like twenty years previously, which is that the zombies are slow. Then you could just walk right past them. Um, but um, he he really dislikes the ending of it. Um, let's say the ending of the movie with its bonfire and tortured freeze frame scenes is apparently intended to suggest that we really are no better than the zombies. A conclusion which, even based on the evidence of the characters in the movie, I have trouble in accepting. Um, I thought that something very similar to that, and I didn't like the very end of that movie with like the suggestion that look comes up like obviously in dawn of the dead you know and to some degree in night of the living dead it's like there's there's this idea of like maybe we are our own worst enemy that keeps popping up in romero's kind of stuff but i thought to be like um, i thought it was like almost hitting you over the head the very end um and that's the only thing i really like disliked about this movie was i felt like it was just taking a ball peen hammer um to make sure it like drove it home for you um as opposed to letting you ponder it um it felt like a more definitive, ethereal statement, I guess, to me or something, uh, which I didn't really care for. But um, yeah, I, I, this is enjoyable. I kind of feel the same way. I don't know necessarily why it had to be remade, but it was remade well. I thought um, I, I really liked the the actors in it. I like uh, Tal's too, the uh, guy that was in um, uh, uh, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I, I I enjoyed it. Like, you know, I just, I, I just, I don't know. I guess I felt similarly. I just don't know why it had to be remade, but it was, well, it was remade well. Oh, um, again, it, it had to be remade because there's this, like, huge multi-million dollar franchise that these dudes are not getting, right? Yeah. like, paid for. Yeah, no, I get it. That. I get it. Yeah. Um. I don't know. I think I would still sit down and watch the original before I'd watch this. Um, I enjoy this one more than the original, honestly. Really? And I've seen it both like a number of times. So yeah, it's purely like I understand the importance of the original, and I think the original is a better movie. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't like watch this one every single time over the original. I think. Hmm. Yeah, there's something I like about the black and white in that movie. Um, as opposed to the color in this, and I don't know why. Um, because so much of it is really the first, like, it, it is so much of a, like, I saw this done on the stage, uh, I think I told you, like, our college, like, put this on, like, as, like, a two-night thing, um, because a couple of the guys that work there, like, kind of got permission to go ahead and, like, you know, stage this for Halloween, um, and they did a really good job with, like, a very simple set, like, you know, of, like, uh, a downstairs and upstairs like on one side of the stage and the outside on the other kind of um and they did a really good job with it because it is kind of like a stage play and i think there's just something about that stage play element almost like you know that small like drawing you know what is a drawing room like you know kind of drama of this movie right. i think like for some reason i just like in black and white a little bit more for some reason it gives it more of like a almost like a universal never-ending feel to it like it could be any time or something um as opposed to like a very specific time because of the film stock and that kind of thing um maybe like i don't know um if that makes sense or not but. i understand i mean again like i 
100% think that the original is a better movie and a more important movie, but knowing that, like, from an entertainment standpoint, like, I'd rather watch this. You know what I mean? Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, and I don't know. I just only, I watched this, I, I, have had, I had to have watched this when I was young, and I just don't really remember it all that well, but I know there are certain scenes I remember, because I remember Tony Todd um, being being in it. But um, this is probably only the second time I've ever seen it. Um, so it probably is something I should watch again at some point and see how I feel about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a good work. It's 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 a, it's a good re- you know remake. Um, I, I mean, I can't really should I like I said, I just don't really care. I I agree with Ebert. I don't really care for that ending that much. But um, I think it's like a little like not even heavy handed. It's just like cynical, like unnecessarily cynical. Maybe I don't know. Or but it's the nineties. You know? Yeah, yeah, sure. This was the watchword of the day. <laughs> All right, I'm really interested to hear you talk about this movie. Um, number one movie on your list is called Hardware. I've never heard of this movie before in my entire life. Before you um, put this on this list, it is directed by Richard Stanley. Um, this is his first movie, right? Yes, this okay. is. Okay, and it stars Dylan McDermott, um, Stacey Travis, uh, John Lynch, and Iggy Pop. It has a 50% from critics and a 52% from audiences, um, which really reflects my feelings on, on this movie to some degree. Because, um, But I'm sure most people probably do not know this movie. I had never heard of it. I never even like come across anything about it in my entire life, like even in a reference, I don't think. Um, so do you want to tell people what this movie is about and a little bit about like Stanley and um and, and why you have it number one on your list? This will be our second time talking about Stanley on right. the podcast. Um having talked about um Color Out of Space. But that was that was a quick cage episode though, right? Yeah, that was a quick yeah. cage. Right. Um so Stanley so the premise of hardware is that um, it's a post-apocalyptic future, um, very similar to, I would say, like, it's the future envisioned in Mad Max um, Fury Road, basically, mm-hmm. um, where the world has just, like, been dis- environmentally destroyed. Um, these... I don't know, like roving traders like go out into the wasteland and find relics and artifacts from the past and bring them back to civilization um, where they sell them. Um, this one mysterious like desert wanderer finds this um, basically disassembled android looking thing that he brings back, um, which is bought by uh, the Dylan McDermott character um, to take back to his girlfriend who's a um, almost like an installation artist, like a visual artist, where she puts together, like, found artifacts and creates, like, new art from it. Um, But unfortunately, what it turns out is that this thing that he's found is this experimental um, killing machine that is designed to basically be, like, unstoppable and to, like, murder everything. Uh, So the thing is, she assembles it as, like, an art piece, but the thing is reactivated and comes to life and starts to, I mean, basically it's just like, it, it, it kills this creep that, um, 
has been spying on her and it's kind of set up where you think that he might be like a killer of some kind. Um, and then she ends up having to ultimately, um, fight it off in her house. It's a, it's a really good, like, I don't know what you would call that genre, but, um, like hider in the house type thing, mm-hmm. um, where there's like, or, uh, he knows you're alone or whatever, like all those movies where it's like, right. Protagonist versus antagonist in the very small combined space of like an apartment or a, a home or whatever. Um, and she ends up like beating it in the end by putting it in the shower, basically. Um, visually, like I think this movie has some, some stunning shit in it. And I think that it's maybe one of my favorite, um, like 100% dystopian looks at a post-apocalyptic future. Like post-apocalyptic is going to be like inherently dystopian anyway. Right. But this movie feels like everything that Waterworld wants to be, but doesn't get right. Mm. Like this movie gets a hundred percent right. Like the, just the griminess of everything combined with the idea that there's like so much of the planet that's unusable and there's like just shit left over from our current, like our whatever, like our present or the present of 1990 that's just like laying around. And um, the idea that, you know, he doesn't want to have a child because he can't see or she doesn't want, one of them doesn't want to have a kid. I can't remember how, like, what that dynamic is exactly but because they can't see um bringing like a child into like that hopeless of an environment and i mean that's a pretty common trope i think in post-apocalyptic uh film but just really done well here i just love the way everything looks like so much like i love the way the city looks i love all the cinematography from out in the desert like to me I had forgotten about this movie in some ways, except for flashes of like images from it. Mm-hmm. And I would remember it and think like, man, like I wish I could remember what that movie was. And then when I started doing 90 and I read it, I was like, fuck, it's that movie. And just really like excited, like watching it again. It gave me a lot of, um, really good nostalgia. And I, 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 I think it's amazing to look at personally. I mean, I don't know that it's narrative wise, like the best movie, but. I, I think it's still pretty effective as a horror movie. Um, and especially with you figure as limited a budget that this guy had to work on. Um, so he was like a wonderkin, basically. He made this and then he made a movie called Dust Devil and Dust Devil like drew the attention of everybody. Um, and that's like 95 or six, I think Dust Devil comes out, mm-hmm. but it was those movies that gave him the, um, cachet you know to push him into being the guy to make the island of dr moreau and that just ruined his career for like the better part of two decades really um until he was able to come back with colorado states but just a really brilliant guy um an incredibly unique um aesthetic sensibility when it comes to just the framing of things and the way things look. And I mean, you look at like his storyboards for Moreau and you look at some of the stuff he does in dust devil a few years from now. And he just has this really, and Colorado space, like even now, you know, like 
30 years later or whatever, this amazing, incredibly unique mindset for how to like film and frame and his set designs and his costume designs. I, I just, I'm glad that like, you know, he's getting a second chance now to make some more movies. Right. Um, and I think that going back and looking at his older movies is like artifacts of, you know, this guy who has, uh, um, had all this talent and all this promise and basically just got like thrown to the wayside. Like it's pretty, pretty amazing to watch this and think like, what could he have done? You know, had they just let him keep making these small movies, like how many more, how many more movies would you have seen? Right. Which is also depressing. But yeah. Yeah. So. Owen Gleiberman, um, Entertainment Weekly, um, at the time, gives it a D plus. D is in dog. Yes, D is in dog. Yes, um, D is in dumb. D is in uh, uh, dirty. Um, he says, if you've never seen Aliens, Blade Runner, The Road Warrior, or RoboCop, you may think the scrap metal action thriller hardware is vaguely original. <clears throat> Says for a while, the movie offers low budget variations on the usual retro future jokes, such as action, porn, TV shows, characters who dress like punked out auto mechanics. Then the hero brings home the shattered carcass of an old robot for the use in one of his girlfriend's sculptures, and the robot reassembles itself and spends the rest of the film terrorizing the girlfriend. Had the killer droid been conceived as a charismatic demon, hardware might have delivered some B movie kicks. As it is, there's nothing particularly scary or awesome about this low-tech walking junk pile. It's as if someone had made Alien with the monster played by a Rusty Erector set. Um, how do you feel about like what you were saying about the setting of this movie? Um, versus his complaint and the complaint of like a lot of others, which is why I chose him just because I hate him. But um, I chose him kind of like as the representative because a lot of people make the complaint that like, um, this is just ripping off a number of other movies in terms of not only it's uh look at the future, um, but also like there's like Terminator comparisons or RoboCop comparisons in terms of the mon- like the, the, you know, the, machine and sure. like um Judge like, Dread 80 I mean it's basically a rip off of like an 80 2099 which was a comic series um story right the man was 23 years old when he made this movie uh-huh. he was a kid like right. there's a lot of things that when I was a kid I was pretty creative you know I creative writing i painted i drew my friends and i made movies and there were plenty of times where like when we were 17 18 19 years old when we were doing this stuff that we did things that weren't wholly original or that were inspired by something we had seen or whatever you know i mean like it's just you got to look at the way that it looks i think and it's not so much the story itself that I 
sure. There's it, it borrows heavily from a lot of different sources. A lot of things borrow heavily from a lot of different sources. I mean, even some of the stuff you mentioned, like pull from right, like other places in terms of their inspiration. Yeah, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Like, I think that I think that he takes a bunch of different small things from really successful sources and finds a way to make them his own. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that it's wholly successful from a narrative standpoint. And again, like, I think it's crass to say, well, if the alien had been made out of an erector set, because here's a guy with like no budget. Right. Like still trying to present an idea that more or less works in the way that he wants to present. It. And it's a little hokey and it definitely doesn't feel like big budget, but I think that's charming. And I'm telling you, the, I mean, I've watched a lot of movies in my life or whatever, but the scenes, especially in the beginning where the masked, you know, like desert rat is like going through and like pulling up these relics from the past and, Mm -hmm. you know, going back and just the whole scene of like him selling it basically to the smarmy, like cocksure Dylan McNair, like all that stuff is just really well done. And it's actually my favorite stuff in the entire movie. And again, it's it's like you watch something like Dimension Thirteen or whatever, or like a lot of the stuff that um you know the New World Picture stuff that Corman did with um like De Palma and um, Coppola and like all these people who would eventually go on to make you know great films. Like watching their initial output that they had no budget for, that they had to be really innovative and clever in terms of, like, still putting together a story. Like, I think it's similar to that. I think it's a... Like, a truly amazing artifact of its time and a really sad look at, like, the visual talent of a guy that would go on to basically get screwed out of a career a few years later. Have you seen that documentary about that? Yeah, it's depressing. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't watched it yet. I just read a little bit about it when we were doing Color Out of Space. But... It's, it's it's fantastically done. Like, yeah. It's a really good documentary. Did Did you um, know that he says he's writing a Dunwich Horror adaptation? Yeah, that's supposed to be the next thing that he does, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't heard that yet. but That's a different episode at some point, but I would like to talk to you about some point about Lovecraft and like why you think at this point in time Lovecraft is reemerging, but um, I think it's a long time. We were talking about it now. It'd take me five minutes. Yeah, okay. Um, Lovecraft has never left the public consciousness. Like every few years, um, you see like a swell of people, like people that have never heard of him learning about him or people like re refinding him or something happens where there's like a video game or I don't know, like a reference somewhere and people start to talk about them. Um, I think a lot of it is because there's a feeling of it being unfilmable in a lot of ways. And the best Lovecraft adaptations are the ones that come from his small stories, which is why you've never seen, I mean, there's some like avant-garde stuff of like the Cthulhu mythos and um, what's his name? The reanimator guy did a good Dagon. Um, adaptation 
but nothing that's ever like perfectly captured it because it's almost unfilmable. And I think that that's the thing is that like because when you read it's we're talking about this about Tolkien today a little bit via text about Lord of the Rings because I'm you know rereading the Lord of the Rings books and how it's just there's something about the narr- the way that he creates this reality through his language that's um like so clear and amazing and immediately like visual and Lovecraft is the same where it's like there's things that when he describes it to you like you see it perfectly in your head and then it's almost impossible I think or up to this point it's been almost impossible to translate it to film okay. which back to Stanley is another thing is that Stanley has always been in love with Lovecraft and made Color Out of Space and is probably in Color Out of Space like come the closest to really capturing exactly what you think what I think Lovecraft should look like on film like when I visualize it in my head so okay makes sense plus because he created this like just crazy mythos with so many loose ends to it like it allows you to use your imagination to go off of those loose ends you know what i mean right and you have the ability to like like he let people like ramsey campbell and um uh, what are some of the other ones there's a bunch of people that he allowed basically to take his creations and like weave like different universes and timelines and characters and it's just generated like this huge almost like shared culture it's like the idea of the scps almost you know that internet phenomenon of like the um i don't even know what you would call those like secret monsters or something um it's the same thing except it's been happening for you know a hundred years where people have like just built layer upon layer upon this universe this man created um and it's fascinating i think that like the idea of that unknowable horror where it's mostly your imagination creating and i think that that is a fascinating thing for people so okay yeah that makes sense that it's like that it's like we can now try to film the things that were yeah that that's that makes perfect sense too like honest attempts can be made now um to do those things. But you you hate one of my um favorite adaptations of a Lovecraft story. Which one's that? Um Gates of Hell, I guess is the title that you would know it by, the um the Fulci horror movie with the priest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I, I don't know. It's a really bad adaptation of that story, the Doug yeah. McCarr. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But you know how I feel about Fulci. It's uh, well, part sometimes about Fulci. Um, I just think it's grotesque for grotesque sake. But um, what number are they on that Royal Rumble, Frank? Uh, Baron Corbin just got eliminated by Dominic Mysterio. I think it was like twenty something. Fucking big Baron Corbin. Yeah, they're setting up a really. It, it's going to make me really angry. Like I'm trying not to be pissed right now, but. 
I could see like some just like hesitation and confusion kind of like crossing your face like in the past like three minutes while you were very like eloquently still talking about Lovecraft while you were trying to comprehend whatever mess is on your screen right now. Well, Shinsuke Nakamura got eliminated for no reason. Right. So early on, (laughs) Randy Orton got eliminated, but he didn't get eliminated. He got injured by Edge and they walked him to the back. So that's already the screw job. It's whoever's left at the end. Orton's going to come out. Sure, sure. Either eliminate them to let Orton win the Rumble, which would be terrible, or it's going to be like Edge in there, and then Edge is going to eliminate Orton, and Edge is going to be in that right. And Orton's but uh, what? I mean, let me tell you something. Edge has been in this thing now for the entire time. He was number one. Yeah, he's not blown up really at all. Like he looks pretty good. Oh, fucking! Oh, look, the dudes. Whatever. Yeah, it's when you're that ripped for whatever reason. You're that ripped. Um, yeah, I don't think you're gonna blow up. But I mean, he's in good shape. He's in good shape. Oh, Dominic Mysterio just got eliminated like super hard. (laughs) All right, so um. Well, poor people with the, with the rumble. So, uh, 90 list. Um, I liked a lot of these movies um, to varying degrees overall for myself. Um, I've watched 91. I know what's coming up. Like, I really like those lists. Like, you know, like I really love 91's list uh, a lot. List. Um, like I said, I think this is an asterisk list a little bit because... But I still think that you found like some pretty good movies here that I enjoyed watching. Um, even if you had to kind of dig a little deeper into the year um, with it, honestly, I I think putting the Guardian at five, like I really, I really think that's like, I don't know, maybe the second best movie on here to me. <laughs> I was really disappointed when you put the Guardian at five. Really? Yeah, I really liked it. I really liked it. I mean, I think it's a fun movie. Like, don't get me wrong. Yeah. You know what I really liked in that? I forgot to mention is Brad Hall, who's known as comedian. Um, but I really like. You know, plays the architect. Uh, yeah, he's the blonde haired dude, like the tall blonde haired dude that like gets right. killed by her, like you know, pretty halfway through the movie. But um, yeah, I was surprised by like you know like how suitable he was in that movie for being a old SNL, like, you know, like Lost Years comedian um, in 84 and stuff like that. But um, alright. Any final thoughts on this, Frank? No, just, um, I'm excited to do the rest of this decade, like I think it's, um, yeah. Better than I really thought it would be when I started doing it. Absolutely. Alright. I also really like the fact that we have the entire decade plotted out at this point. Mm Mm-hmm. So that there's no need to, um, right, like yeah. make lists on the fly or anything. Like right. Yeah. I agree. You just kind of watch them. I am too. Yep. Yep. I agree. All right. So that's the episode tonight for everybody. Uh, next week, like I said, we'll be off, but we will be back with a uh, probably like four to five hour long episode um, for the 100th episode here in two weeks. Thank you for listening, um, and uh, have a good week. Yep, have a good night.